Well, welcome back, everybody, to Beyond Barriers podcast. I'm Jeff Scoop with my co-host, Acacia Dietz, and our special guest on this program today is Nick Danes from England. Hi, Nick. How are you doing? Hi, Jeff. Thanks so much for having me on the show. It's a real pleasure to join you both. Thanks for coming. Um, could you tell us a little bit, share a little bit about uh, your background and, and uh, what it is that you do over there? Sure, yeah. Thanks as well. Uh, so my kind of um, professional background is uh, you know, I've been a psychiatric nurse uh, for some some time um, when I was first studying. I uh, did that to complement uh, the degree that I was doing. So I've worked in some very acute mental health environments, um, working with people that have very uh, poor mental health. Um, and then for some time after that, went into business, but found that was really uh, unrewarding. Uh, if you like. So I've always been pulled back to working with people uh, and uh, found my kind of calling really where I was working with young people, young offenders, um, and trying to help them discover new opportunities. So I was a, essentially a care officer uh, in a secure young offenders centre. Um, and while I was there, an opportunity arose to work with the UK government uh, prevent program, which is part of their four-strand counter-terrorism uh, strategy. So that was a new kind of part of this uh, contest strategy that looks to try to uh, intervene, if you like, or prevent um, homegrown terrorism. So that sort of emerged and evolved out of the attacks that happened in um, 7-7 uh, in London uh, on the buses and tube trains in London, um, and really tries to look for the kind of early contributors, early factors uh, involved where people are being drawn into extreme groups uh, and being radicalised uh, in particular, um, different violent ideologies, so it's trying to prevent violent extremism. Uh, so I've specialised in that since 2008 and uh, currently providing uh, mentoring um, to the Home Office, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, because we've uh, adopted the American version for our security team as well. So, so with Homeland Security uh, as one of um, a handful of intervention providers that you might work around the UK. And that, and that was one of the things that I was so excited to talk with you about too, is because is, I remember we had discussed this, the mentorship program and, and what you do, because what you're doing is, is very similar to the work that we're doing here in the U.S., so um, I was I was looking forward, to, definitely looking forward to asking you some of these questions and and uh, discuss for the listening audience. How well does that mentorship work? Like um, in your experience, because you've been doing this for a long time, like what has your experience been with it? Has it been a very effective or? Uh, that's a really good question, Jeff. I think you know, quantifying what we do is really, really important. And you know, looking to kind of give tangible evidence of the outcomes um, that we're, we're achieving is really important. Um, because I, you know, similarly to uh, kind of working guys in the States, it's important to have those um, supports, layers of support when people are looking to um, disengage and, and exit from a, from a group. I would say um, 80%, you know, a solid 80% of people that I work with will, um, you know, they kind of disengage from their journey, if you like. So you know, when I approach uh, people and the way that I approach the mentoring that I do, is I'm not looking to turn around someone's political attitudes or turn them from someone who thinks, you know, in a very kind of right-wing mentality, I'm not looking to turn them into someone entirely, with entirely opposite views. I'm looking to disengage them from a violent mindset. Um, and often that kind of support and opportunity for them to have their say, to express why they feel like they do, uh, is really um, useful. So that they're able to, you know, Get someone who can understand, who can really um, draw out some of the things that have encouraged them into those particular groups. And while there are obviously a lot of similarities, as I'm sure you well know, with why, why people become engaged in a violent ideological um, worldview, um, there's always individual reasons. So it's showing the support for those individual people and treating people as you know, a kind of uh, important one-to-one -one situation rather than trying to put people in boxes, you know?
Now, would you say that like the majority of the people that you work with, because I know you've worked with youth, you've worked with adults, kind of a little bit, a whole lot, a whole, whole lot. Um, yeah. But the majority of the individuals that you do the the one-on-one -on -one with now, are they more like younger or are they adults? Are they youth or are they adults? Or um, both? They tend, yeah, they do tend to be younger adults. Yeah, so okay. um, I, it, it's not frequent, but you know, I've worked with um, young people sort of around 12 uh, upwards. Uh, okay. That's not the kind of norm by any stretch of the imagination. It tends to be maybe sort of 14, um, more towards you know, late twenties, um, and then kind of other, you know, less so, but still I've worked with a, a group that can you know, maybe late thirties, all the way okay. up to people in their sixties. Wow! But, and again, you know, people's circumstances are really um, individual. So you know, I've had uh, mentoring sessions with people that have a lot of life experiences that things have just kind of collapsed in on them, and you know, really. They're looking for, you know, circumstances. They're looking for people to blame their circumstances, if you like. So it's trying to understand that and why people are drawn into that kind of group. Now, I know you had uh, sent on your bio, you had talked about Safe Frontiers. And I real quick wanted to cover that series and I will keep, put a link to it in our uh, description for the podcast. But if you can explain to the viewers kind of what the mission of Safe Frontiers is and um, how that came about. Yeah, I appreciate you asking about that. Well, I've, that came about uh, with someone I've worked with. So it's a young person I was mentoring that is a legitimate genius. You know, he's highly intelligent. Uh, he's been through you know, terrible neglect with family members, so mum. Uh, being very neglectful of him and his two brothers. Um, mm. and he was in a really bad uh, state of mind when we first started working together. He, he had agency burnout. You know, everybody um, in the whole range of services had tried to reach him. Um, mental health services, youth services. Um, and Safer Frontiers um, came about as part of our kind of online safety project. So he and I um, put our uh, efforts together um, and really tried to tackle the kind of increase in online extremism. You know, as I'm sure you guys are going to be familiar with, right, the online space, you know, we've seen it grow. It's such a powerful tool um, for these kind of groups to recruit and to influence others, often by really kind of devious means. Um, so we want to do just to try to share a little bit of our um, respective knowledge. Um, and it's been really productive in the sense that people kind of look, their expectation of me is like, you know, I'm an older uh, guy, I've been in, in the kind of uh, industry for some time. Um, and the, the impact comes with when professionals can talk with a young person, someone who's been immersed in the kind of online space and really hear uh, the genuine experiences and uh, the, the ways that kind of these groups will manipulate or how easy it is for people to be manipulated online um, right. and the kind of information available. Uh, so the series of films that we did uh, was intended to give voice to young people um, and update the kind of, you know, the, the kind of really stifled, really kind of like not very dynamic uh, safety films that were out there that were being produced by like government organisations. So we, we worked with a group of young people uh, who are filmmakers in Leicester, uh, in the UK, um, and they developed these films with our support and guidance, but from their own experiences. Mm -hmm. So it's a series of four films that look at different aspects of online safety and, and grooming. And I think that's kind of an important one, connection. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that's not realised when professionals have dialogue about radicalisation, sexual exploitation, that the grooming process is very much part of gang mentality, um, about you know, ideological radicalisation. Uh, yeah. These groups seek to really um, you know, gain trust and then eventually exploit that person through a process of grooming. 
Yeah, and I, I highly recommend anybody to take a look at them. Like I said, the link will be in the bio and then the description. But um, yeah, it's it's it, it gives a different perspective. I think there's a lot of times, um, you know, while we're covering youth right now, is that you know the youth will watch something or parents will watch something, and having the youth play in it and actually telling that story I think is very impactful for both the youth and the adults because the adults look at it and it triggers something different because they're viewing things maybe from through their child's eyes versus through I'm an adult you're a kid you should just go with whatever I say and be okay with yeah. it here this is how easy this can happen um, I know I showed Jeff the one um, about the little boy that got the Xbox and then the his friend wanted to come over, wanted him to come over, but he wasn't to say anything to his parents. And it's, you know, those things happen all the time. I have three younger, well, they're not so little anymore. My youngest is 12, my oldest is 16. But even my 12 year old, when he's on like playing Call of Duty on, you know, the PlayStation and whatnot, he's always on chat and I'm like, I've gone over with all of them, obviously, you do not give out your address, you do not give out anything, and, you know, if there is anything, you either come to me or come to your older brother, and then they'll come to me, whichever, but, you know, those are the uncomfortable conversations that we as parents have to have with our kids, and I Definitely. think these videos are a good place to start if any parent is wanting to talk to their kids about some of these situations these videos would be a great place to start. And I saw in one thing, they did win some awards. Is that correct for the series? That's or at right, least yeah. Several, they've been very successful. Yeah, they've been really, really successful, I'd say. Um, yeah, they, they made it as far as Mexico and uh, New York, so the New York uh, Film Festival. Um, oh, and we won several awards at the Into Film um, in 2019, produced. Um, so obviously COVID has, has held things up. But what you're kind of mentioning about these uncomfortable conversations, they're good, those films are a good way to bridge that gap if you like and become a kind of discussion point. Exactly. Um, and yeah, we have to empower this generation who are molded the internet to yeah. be comfortable and confident with speaking up about things that they find are not accessible. Because yeah. our mission, if you like, um, is to uh, ensure people realise there's no police in the internet. You know, there's so many people uh, who are using this wonderful resource, but the, the kind of um, uses for a sinister purpose are there. We have to acknowledge those. Um, and a lot of the people that participate in our educational work are shocked, are surprised. You know, that it's you know the, the old it, it's got a, a shock value to these things because parents are often either kind of wrapped up in uh, the pressures that they have to deal with as parents and they don't have time to talk about um what young people see online and it's amazing like you mentioned that when we produced this series of films that the amount of friends that i had that said oh my, you know, my son or my daughter so i had conversations with it you know so it affects so many people um, and being aware of the, the warning signs, uh, it's really important. You know? Absolutely. And the isolation, like you mentioned, you know, for young people, it's a difficult time you know, developing over adolescence. And often young people can feel so isolated. Um, when people are there, there to say, you know, I'm just like you, or I've been through this, and I identify with where you're coming from, or like the same music as you do, you know, whatever it might be they're building that trust and uh, they're trying to separate them from parental or friendship kind of relationships. So especially if you appreciate you putting that up there, Acacia. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think especially with COVID and all that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's incredibly important that people see films like that as well. And, and like you had said about engaging the youth, having them in there, having them talk about it, it gives them a platform. And that's something that everybody I think wants everybody wants to be heard they want they want their voice to be heard and a lot of times uh, people that are going into these extremist organizations um, it's a bit of a motivation for them as well is is uh, that they feel like they're going to be heard their their grievances their voices are going to be heard and and uh, um, it's in, it's important that people are heard but not in that manner 
you know, not in the manner of, of getting involved in extremism. So um, I, I think it's, it's so important with the work that you're doing over there and, and well, with the work that we're all doing. And, and uh, I think that mentorship, I, I really I really think, you know, coming back to that, that that's a really important thing as well, because I think it helps a lot. Um, and as you said earlier, not telling people that they're wrong, so to speak, or, or, or going in there like you're going to change them. That, that stuff is all going to come later. But um, as our colleague Daryl Davis says, you know, he, he'll, a lot of times when uh, they cover his work, they'll say, you know, he changed all these people. He's, I didn't change nobody. I just gave him a different way of looking at things. And that's, that's our policy. That's kind of how we, we do things with Beyond Barriers, too, is we listen, we hear what they're saying, and we offer them different ways of, of looking at uh, different perspectives and different uh, ways of looking at things. They've got to make up their minds for themselves. No one's going to stay out uh, of that lifestyle if they think you force them to change or that we, you, they had to change or something like that. You, you want them to realize it on their own, and then you're going to have a lasting, uh, a lasting effect on it. I think I, right. with the, with yes. the program, I think it's really good. Yes, it's definitely that is plays and like say Daryl mentioned that, and yeah, the work that we do collectively, I think. It's being there as part of someone's journey and encouraging them to kind of make the, you know, the right choices or encouraging them to question everything, you know, question information. You know, I never ask people to believe what I have to say. I ask people to think independently and like encouraging kind of critical analysis. Right. You know, what, I come, what I come up against, Jeff, quite a lot as well is, is this kind of like the pseudo-intelligent way of uh, argument for justifying average intelligence, you know, the, the IQ testing and things like that. And it's such a, um easy concept to deconstruct because even the guy who created these tests said they're not meant to be an indicator of like, average intelligence. They're used to um, identify people who need educational support. You know, intelligence changes, it's not fixed, you know, all these kind of um, different ways of looking at some of the arguments that the extreme right wing or, you know, Islamist ideologues will use uh, to try and separate and dis uh, distinguish between the other, you know, yeah. like we're, we're superior and they're inferior, you know, right. it's very similar arguments often across the board, you know, used to try and separate people and stop them having conversations like we're having. Right. Now, over in the UK, do you deal more with like right-wing extremism or far-right extremism, the ideology, or uh, jihadi, um, the Muslim extremism, or is it, it it's just kind of a mix? Um, I, I did uh, begin the kind of work that I was doing um, in you know, providing mentor, mentoring for all different types of ideological extremism. So I've worked initially with a lot of young men who were being drawn into gangs, but were identifying as Muslim. Oh. You know, so a lot of young offenders who were part of gangs um, that would commit like, horrendously violent crimes um, and then kind of talk to me about their, their faith or how they perceive their faith and their identity. Um, but I was, you know, tasked with kind of working more with far right extremists. Um, so I come from a kind of like behavioral psychology perspective. So looking at the you know, motivators, like we said, why are people kind of motivated to uh, engage with this way of thinking and these kind of worldviews. Um, and I think like I say, there are similarities across um, all violent ideology. Um, and you know, something that I was really proud of Craig McCann for highlighting is that there are more than just Islamist and far-right violent ideologies out there. Yeah. You know, and the sooner that people start having a communication about that uncomfortable truth, the better. Because, you know, obviously as we look to America, we see the kind of protests that happen, the division in the kind of politics going on you know, in the US at the moment. Um, and that's being played out in exactly the same way in the UK, but you know, people are pitching each other on one side of or the end of an extremism type of argument, and yeah. the middle ground gets lost. You know? And that's social media polarizes that so well. You know, and it's this 
kind of old, you know, uh, eternal thing of either you're with us or against us. If you don't agree right. with us, then you're like obviously against us. And it makes it so difficult then to have constructive discussion with people, um, particularly on the extreme left as well, because, you know, uh, you know I've got people, you know, guys and, and women that I've worked with that they can barely, you know, utter a sentence before they're being labelled as a bigot. So, yeah, that's a real got to be part of the dialogue that goes on as well, as kind of various different types of extremism. We've yeah. seen that in the United States too, and it's it's really troubling because a lot of times when I when I point things like that out, they'll say, "Well, you know," and you you point out that there's extremes on all the different sides, and, and they say, "Well, the side that that they agree with." is not as bad as the other one. Or they'll say, well, the right killed more people or, or you know, here or there, they make these kind of excuses. And it's like, hey, we're not trying to play a game here of who's worse or, you know, or who, who's better. All of those, when you get into the extremes are bad. And when you can't see the person sitting across from you or standing across from you as a human being, and you just see them as right or wrong, we're seeing that on a level in the United States right now where it's so bad that um, both sides aren't talking to each other. And I'm not talking about the I'm not talking about Nazis and communists. I'm talking about Democrats and Republicans, right? And, you know that they're yeah. getting more and more radical and heading towards those extremes and not wanting to talk to one another. We need more and more sensible people um, going towards the center. Or you could be center right, center left. It, it doesn't matter. And then the same could be said with religions. You know, it's it's like when you get to that extreme where you start dehumanizing others. Um, you know, it's not good for humanity. It's not good for our country. So, I mean, these discussions, I think, are so incredibly important, and we have to um, realize that we all don't have to agree either. You know, right. we're we're all. How boring would it be if everybody agreed with everything? But um, that there's more nuance to it than a lot of people would like to see. Don't tell that to a yeah. woman. You guys agree with everything we say. That's different. That's a whole other. <laughs> That's it. That's an entirely different show. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but it's for our own good, because right. that we have to. Go ahead. Sorry, sorry. I, I was just going to ask, um, and I know you can't. You know, we, you, we don't give details and names or anything like that. But um, this is kind of a this is a two part question. Um, one of your uh, greatest successes and one of the greatest fails as far as doing this kind of work, and obviously not names, but just maybe generalized uh, story. What if uh, if you have an answer on that one? Yeah, thanks, thanks, Jeff. I think you know the important part is that you know the general public don't get to hear about the, the brilliant successes that myself and colleagues have because um, there's quite a you know a vocal anti-prevent lobby in the UK. So, you know, see what the program is doing is invasive or coercive, you know, things like that. Whereas mm. in reality, it's uh, entirely voluntary. Um, you know, people don't. I, I try to use my winning personality like to engage with people. Um, but uh, definitely, one of the greatest successes I've had um, has been. Now, there's, there's been quite a few. You know, you know, I often work with people that are. I call them tinkerers, so they're tinkering around with explosives, and they're highly intelligent, and they're making, you know, as young men and, and women, but predominantly young men have right. done, uh, is they like to experiment with things. Um, and one of the guys that I've worked with who's turned things around really uh, significantly is, is someone he was planning to you know, make pipe bombs and use those at demonstrations. Uh, when he was a lot younger, um, you know, his, his family were quite chaotic, um, and he was engaging with a very well-known um, street movement in the UK, a group called Britain First. Um, there are more high-of-the-line groups out there, but um, obviously there's quite a few popularist movements in the UK as well. Uh, and he was going on to demonstrations, and he was very close to leaving explosive devices at you know, plans. Uh, mosque building, you know, mosque sites in the UK. So he was um, very much attack planning and uh, was able to engage with him um, and really kind of uh, show the value of, it, of his, what he had to offer you know, and the intelligence he had. This is 99 times out of 100. Uh, the people that are so intelligent have got a lot to offer people. 
Um, they just haven't maybe heard it. They've heard, you know, disruptive uh, problem child or you know, things like this rather than people playing to their strengths or, you know, education obviously is, a, you know, certain ways it's a one-size-fits-all approach. Okay. Right. Um, so they're, they're often either sort of seen as compliant or disruptive. Uh, and this guy was highly intelligent but very disruptive and um, he was being influenced by these kind of groups. Um, but now, um, and he's actually, there's an interview that's available um, we did together that's uh, he moved from a very racialized perspective on life to actually, um, he, one of his partners uh, was a black African uh, girl and they started a family together and they're very happily in a relationship. Oh. So whenever I speak to him, like, yeah, that kind of reminds me that, and, and him that he's been able to bridge the, the differences that he's had, you know, with, with people. Um, it's not only that, he's kind of, you know, looking after and he's, he's a brilliant dad, um, but that opportunity uh, could have so easily been missed, if you like. Yeah. Um, but also, uh, in terms of failures, um, you know, there was a, a huge series of, of legal cases in the UK with people who were being um, drawn into a very serious breach prescribed, they were the first far-right group to be prescribed by the, the government in the UK, so now that tells you something because we've had groups like Combat 18 and Aerial Strike Force and you know, some really hard-line kind of groups um, that uh, very vocal, so they, they were the first group to get banned um, and they were actively recruiting people who had capability, so like we've seen with Atom Moffin and you know, groups on the, on the base, they were looking to find people to recruit with particular military backgrounds, policing backgrounds, you know, kind of insinuating themselves into those roles. So, um, again, not going into too much detail, but I have worked with several people in that circle and uh, some of whom have kind of mocked the prevent process. Um, and again, encouraging people on their journey, uh, you know, I've said to those people, uh, what you think and what choices you make when I'm gone is entirely up to you. And I'm not going to cry into my pillow at night if you make the wrong, dec wrong decisions in your life because you're an adult, someone you know, who's old enough to make the right decision. And some of those decisions have come back to haunt the individuals involved. Um, but they had the opportunity and they you know, chose a different route. So I do sometimes feel um, a sense, you know, not re regret, but you know, a missed opportunity, I think. Yeah. What well, you know, about the reason I asked that, too, is because, <clears throat> you know, we, you can't get everyone out. And, and our, our rate of success is, is similar to what, what you had said. I mean, the vast majority stay out. And as the success story that you just mentioned, how many potential lives were saved because of that? That's why it's important, so important this work. And of course, there's critics and there's people that that doubt the work and criticize the work and they'll say, "Well, this person went back," and they make a big deal out of that, but they don't make a a big deal usually out of the successes. And and the public doesn't know that. They don't know that this person that you off ramped. And I know that's what pushes us to do this work as well, is because we don't know. It's not about saving that one individual. That's nice. That's that's helpful. That's a good thing. But it's about saving all the potential innocence that could be, you know, their lives could be taken for no reason because of somebody who's yeah. radicalized into these ideologies. So um, I think that's why it's so incredibly important. And of course, there's going to be fails. And, and I don't feel like that's necessarily the service provider. I don't I don't feel like um, not everybody, you know, we can't make these decisions for everyone. They have to make it themselves and, and uh, they'll regret those decisions later when if they, if they do go back. But the, the good news and the positive news is that there's more successes than there's fails. And, and I wish more people would know that. So thank you so much for sharing some of those experiences with us. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. You know, I've been looking forward to speaking to you for a long time. Um, and it is just, as you say, trying to avoid those instances where you know, people are caught up in the actions of, you know, angry, frustrated, you know, resentful um, people, you know, trying to ensure that lives aren't lost. 
Um, and I think, you know, people don't take the work of prevention seriously in the respect that we are actively disengaging people from those kinds of way of thinking, you know, from violent uh, outcomes. And that is kind of like the uh, tangible result is to try and, um, you know, ensure that we don't see attacks like the one that David Copeland perpetrated. I mean, you know, that's particularly horrific clues into um, you know, nail bombs and things like that around London um, and, and Netflix. I don't know whether you've seen that, but Netflix have done a, a series on, I think it's called um, Catching the Pipe Bomber. Um, but it's, that's quite a high profile case that we have. And there's been plenty more that aren't as publicised because uh, you know, the popular media tend to focus on the Islamist threats. Meanwhile, there's been lots of um, you know, people in other areas of radical thinking that are, uh, again, tinkering around with pipe bombs and making explosives on farms and things like that, um, you know, particularly in rural areas in the UK as well, I think, that are neglected, where people have access to the kind of uh, materials that they need. And of course, you know, we've all, uh, you know, at a certain age, experienced the troubles in Northern Ireland as well, which, uh, you know, I lived through that was horrific times. Uh, and touched so many friends and family of a lot of people in the UK. So uh, they we're very familiar with these kind of domestic extremism cases. Um, that was you know, one of the motives for me getting into this work, was that you know, I didn't want to try to steer people away from acting in those ways. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I was actually kind of just answered a little bit. I was just going to ask you what led you down the road to get involved in working in like counter extremism and prevent and all of that. Um, now, is that something that you had initially knew that you wanted to go into or is it something that developed along the professional path that you took? Yeah, I'm very much because I'm really lucky to have had this opportunity. You know, I was in the right place and the right time really, um, to um, find my ideal role, I think. Um, I was very, very lucky. We um, specialised in you know, the Prevent Project allowed myself and a colleague in the Young Offender Centre to specialise in understanding violent extremism and extreme violence and the right. that remit to um, examine and explore kind of behaviour around gang crime and things like that. And, and particularly the issue that we would. Um, confronting at the time was very violent young offenders you know, that yeah. committed uh, acts of, of murder or attempted murder and very serious confront. Um and that kind of mindset how easily influenced a lot of the time these young people were um, so it really was a great opportunity and, uh, you know, I'd always had an interest in um, you know, kind of current affairs and also counter-terrorism field, particularly, you know, when I was young, there was a situation that happened in Northern Ireland, and it really had um, burned, its, uh, burned its way into my consciousness um, yeah. when, you know, a particular church was attacked um, in uh, Northern Ireland, you know, women and children were attending the service there, and it's just, that resonated with me so deeply, um, and again, as I say, I personally, have had friends or family affected through that process in Northern Ireland uh, and know so many people that have as well. And I work a lot with ex-service personnel uh, as well that's uh, often experienced really terrible trauma. Um, uh, yeah, that was partly a, a route in as well through the kind of mental health uh, work that I was doing. Um, and again, you know, I was experiencing a lot of just violence on a day-to-day -day basis in, in those kind of environments. Um, but working with people and trying to help them with their individual journey as well was something that I've um, always really been quite keen to do. So um, being able to come back into that my line of work, you know, as I say, I was working in a commercial environment for quite some time and really did not feel the sense of reward. Um, you know, and doing, doing well, but not really fulfilling uh, the purpose that you know, right. you know, I felt that I needed to and the kind of call it, which has always been to uh, work with people. You know. That's awesome. 
I've got a question. Um, there, I had heard there was some enhancements on um, sentencing over there in, in England with people that were involved in some of the band groups and things like that. And there's there's been different talk on, on that. <clears throat> and I was just curious, and maybe you don't uh, have an answer on this one, or um, but with some of those enhanced sentences, and I, I'm thinking of a case in, in my mind of someone that, I, that I'm familiar with, but uh, with those sentences, with the young people that are being convicted on, say, those um, being a member of a band organization or a terror organization, when, what is their, um, are you seeing when they finally do get out or when or in, in that process, do the people stay out of the movement when they get out or do they become more hardline after spending time in jail, especially if it's a, a, long, a long period? That is, um, yeah, I think we're about to see more evidence, you know, unfold yeah, about that kind of stuff because um, the kind of sentencing of people involved in um, extreme right-wing groups has uh, been fairly recent. Um, previously, you know, sentencing has been around uh, offences like um, uh, planning to use or make or engage with explosives so it's been explosive charges rather than any particular ideological group right. um, and I, I, I think that um, what I've seen anecdotally from people who've been in prison they've had different experiences sometimes people have um, worked with or you know had interactions with people that they're forced to interact with that they have said previously they would never want to speak with or you know, Hell would freeze over until they spoke to a person from a certain background. Um, you know, they've been pushed together, and that has sometimes been the most productive or the most unusually productive thing ever. Um, but I think we're going to see these cases evolving very soon because people have been sentenced fairly recently, will start to be released, um, and we have a, um, a way of. Um, trying to uh, provide support and attention around those people who have been in, in secure environments uh, through um, a program called DDP, uh, which is uh, a kind of enhanced part of you know, working with people that are on um, terrorism prevention um, packages and, and terrorism prevention orders um, that you know, are quite, you know, quite intense uh, interventions with them and time. Um, but I think, yeah, there's potentially people that are going to be um, reinforced in their kind of anti-government narrative. Yeah. Um, and I think you know, there's different approaches in prisons or HMPs um, in the UK where you know that some of these groups are separated. And of course, that creates an opportunity for hot housing as well. You know, instead right. of interaction or engagement, you know, I guess... You might have seen similar situations in the US where you know, wings are dedicated to you know, like the Aryan Brotherhood or you know, the, the, yeah. kind of like the Hispanic kind of gang, you know, gang perpetrators and, and you know, black um, perpetrators, and they're all separated on different kind of wings of prison. Um, I think that's mm. potentially dangerous, but you know, there's a certain safeguarding elements of that. Um, and as we see more people going into uh, prison, for these kinds of ideological events, and they have been quite serious. The sentences, you know, given have been, you know, pretty stiff. You know, as to make, you know, an example, there's, um, you know, there's been some very serious plots, you know, to to kill MPs and things like that. So, I think that was uh, you know, put out there as an example that we will take, you know, extreme right wing um, related offences very seriously. And I'd uh, say so I think there'll be an emerging group of people that might well be increasingly resentful. Yeah, really good question. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's a tough one. Yeah, it's a tough one because I mean I was thinking you know with with some of those that if they were involved in bomb making or plotting murders or or things like that that would cause. Uh, you know, mass casualties, anything like that. I, I think you have to, and this is my opinion, of course, but I think you have to be strict with those people. But I was thinking of some of the other ones that were just members of of these particular yeah. groups that are now banned. 
Um, and I don't, I don't have all the details on the cases or anything like that, but I've heard different, different stories, and I often wondered about those people. Like, I know it's, they're being uh, made an example out of, but I often wonder, how will they react after they've been in prison for a long time? I know here's some of the struggles here in the U.S. with some of the guys that get out. Uh, there's a case that we're working on, uh, a number of them actually, but one I'm, I'm thinking of in particular, and the guy's covered head to toe in swastika tattoos and things like that that he got in prison. And now he's out, can't get a job, has a hard time finding a place that'll even rent uh, a room to him, you know, and, and those are some of the challenges. And there's not a lot of uh, uh, support networks or almost no support networks in the United States to help uh, folks like that. So um, these are just some of the things I think we as uh, uh, the international community in general has to evaluate and look at. So I just I was just curious. Yeah thoughts on that and what do you think about uh, global cooperation as far as uh, in, in the field like I know we're having the conversation now but what do you think about um, you know cooperating as far as uh, that that sort of thing uh, yeah I'm really gonna be really important you know, even kind of before the, you know, the increasing popularity of the internet you know, there's influence you know, from across kind of Europe um, and America you know, Often trends in the U.S. Like impact uh, on the U.K. and sometimes vice versa as well. Um, but certainly, even pre sort of social media days, like the uh, Blood and Honor music group, like you know, the music kind of collective that is Blood and Honor, um, would tour Eastern Europe and like other countries that are very ultra nationalist, uh, and there's cross pollination um, with a lot of the groups that's. Um, We've seen as well there's been a movement towards uh, mixed martial arts and this kind of notion of needing to defend you know, defend obviously on a blood soil that kind of like cornerstone of, of extreme right wing um ideology uh, so i think to try to um counter uh, these kind of narratives you know obviously they're easy to share easy to spread these days uh, the communication that is going on is increasing exponentially because members of the, the group that we were talking about the band group uh, in the UK um, were reaching out uh, to members of you know, in, in Iron March on that site um, you know different kind of um, divisions around Atom Whopper and the misanthropic division um, yeah. obviously conflicts with the likes which we're seeing in Ukraine that gives opportunity as well for people to go and, and improve their knowledge or kind of uh, their capability and understanding of you know, weapons and how to kind of make explosives and things like that. I think it's really important that we're all representing a global conversation about this. Yeah. You know, because certainly the US is, for me, that, you know, there's been a huge issue with domestic extremism for a long, long time. You know, and even kind of like being aware of groups like National Alliance for a long time, you know, Northwest Alliance, or that, however, you know, that's something. A group that's still um, significant, but uh, there's a lot of different groups. And like, so with the political landscape at the moment, you know, it's um, something I think that it's a collective challenge because people are being pushed not only in the US but you know, across the world globally to these extremes, to like one side of an extreme argument or another. And um, you know, for years as well. Uh, I've banged the drum about the influence of Putin uh, and you know a lot of the far-right groups and members in this country look to Russia as the, the mothership yeah. you know very socially conservative religiously conservative society you know that's anti-LGBT anti-diverse uh, culture and they look to Russia as the kind of like you know shining light of uh, social um, social conservatism if you like yeah, and uh, football hooliganism has been increasing in, in Russia in, in popularity, and they, they look to the UK, so there's this kind of like, um, you know, uh, complementary cultures where British soccer hooliganism, or football hooliganism as we call it, um, <laughs> you know, has cross-pollinated with Russian um, hooliganism as well. Yeah, and that kind of boiled over was the Euro. Uh, championships in 2017 in France, where you had groups of Russian, yeah. you know, uh, hooligans who were clearly—I mean, the, 
for me, that looked like they'd had special forces training and stuff. The way that they operate was very brutal uh, on often crowds of casual drinkers uh, that they'd sweep in and start a huge fire. And, and yeah, the way they were operating was very slick and very well uh, drilled. Um, but those those kinds of um, cultural crossover groups that are in uh, the MMA um, arena, like um, I don't know whether you've heard of White Rex, but like they're they're a really concerning group. They're promoting you know, white only mixed martial arts, um, and has quite a period of popularity within groups in the UK. Yeah, so I mean, there's various different um, aspects of the kind of global culture that I think we're not um, collaborating together and we're going to stand no chance of encountering these things. Absolutely. I'm finding that more and more. I uh, monitor a lot of different uh, chatter and stuff, especially in things like Telegram and whatnot. And mm. because of the online world and the internet now, you can connect with the click of a button all over the world. So a lot of these groups that might not have had other connects other than just in the United States or even maybe in their own state now can connect with Russia, Ukraine, with, you know, all over, really, Australia, New Zealand. Um, and it, it, I've realized, like, it, I'll go into them and at first, because typically we're used to dealing within our own countries, and then you'll start to realize like, oh no, this person's in here and this group's over here, and but it's all interconnected. And it's, it's all about making connections. And if there's a way to kind of disrupt those connections to some degree, that works. And I know you mentioned like the atom waffen and the base and whatnot and accelerationism is what I call it, but that, uh form of right-wing extremism seems to be really, really taken off. And I know it's took off here, but as I look yeah. and I watch, it's it's global, really. And you can have a small cell, but a small cell can do a lot of terroristic damage. And yeah. so it's, have you noticed an uptick <clears throat> in um, like right-wing extremism activity or just extremist activity? activities in general there in the UK um, because I know like at least here in the US it's going haywire because of the political division and everything and it's just it, it's it's a mess right now really so I was just curious in the UK if you've seen some of that also or if it's just kind of how it's always been if it's no. more or less Definitely, actually, yeah, it's, it's been, I, I think it's you know, consistently increasing uh, at the moment. And there are um, you know, uh, international and domestic issues that contribute to that. Obviously, they have been um, trying to uh, cement a, a kind of decent border policy. We've had lots of polarization around kind of political issues like Brexit and becoming a kind of independent from the European Union again. That's contributed massively to the polarisation on, on the political divide as well. Um, but definitely, you mentioned sort of the accelerationism, and yeah, that figures hugely into there's big crossovers with yeah. you know, certain incel mentality and people that are really disaffected online. I've seen that increasing hugely, um, where there are um, havens, you know, obviously boards, you know, chan sites and message board sites uh, yeah. often havens for these kind of communities um, where people are feeling that sense of futility. Uh, it's a theme that's run through extreme right-wing thinking um, in the more hardline groups, you know, burn the whole house down and let's yeah. start again. Um, and that has become really kind of a popular narrative recently. Um, that sense of futility seems to be really pervasive or really kind of like coming through um, particularly online so yeah it's i'd say that there was a huge kind of in, increase in this kind of activity a few years ago and it's been then consistently being fed for the past two or three years through uh, the kind of political landscape and 
developing circumstances, yeah. And, you know, and now obviously economic hardship as well is going to kick in uh, as a result of this conglomeration of things. Uh, and people become, I think, even more resentful. Um, and, you know, uh, tough times and people start looking for people to blame, don't they? So, I want to thank you for, for joining us today. Was there anything else uh, before we let you go uh, that you would like to discuss or, or mention on the program, Nick? Look, Jeff, I'm just so proud of the work that you're doing, but really kind of following adequately both your excellent kind of contribution. And, uh, I just hope, like you said, we can continue having collective dialogues between people and you know, putting people together uh, and having these kind of discussions because, you know, through the work that we do, it reinvigorates that sense of people are generally good, you know, and it does have an impact, uh, and it is important work, uh, and we are doing really positive things for people, providing, you know, that kind of support, the right kind of support that, that people need as well. So keep up the excellent work, um, and just kind of like putting people together, really, really good to see. And I do hope that, uh, you know, I can either give you a tour of London or the UK with accents. <laughs> <laughs> and we can, and we can continue our kind of like relationship as well. So it's been a privilege to uh, come on your podcast. Uh, thank you both uh, very, very much. Thank you, thank you so on. much.